0: Good morning. Everybody got out of spit range, I see. So um, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I can back up if if that's what it takes to get people closer to the front. We're getting we're turning into a Baptist church, guys. If this is what you do, so uh, be careful, be careful. Just just telling you. All right, so grab your Bible, Second Corinthians chapter four. We thank you. Now I feel worse, Scott. I appreciate it. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 4. So what we have before us this morning is a very fun discussion. And so I hope you came prepared to think about this. We have, it's going to be interesting. We have different ideas that we kind of have to take these side paths to talk about so that they'll come back together and make sense of what Paul's doing. And so we're going to have a very interesting discussion, I believe, and answer questions that have probably come up before in your thinking about Um, the gospel and lost people and um, what Satan has to do with it and a lot of interesting things going to go on in the passage this morning. So grab your Bible, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4. What's really going on here is Paul is defending his ministry philosophy. What I mean there is Paul has a mindset about how he should do ministry. If you've ever been to other churches, and I know many of you have been in a lot of different churches, you know that every church you go to does things a little bit differently. Um, Sometimes they do things because they just fell into a pattern and there was no thinking necessarily behind it. It's just the way they're doing it. And sometimes you'll go to church, you go to two different churches that do things radically different because they have some reason. There's a rationale for why they do ministry the way they do ministry. And of course, we have a rationale, we have a ministry philosophy here, which is why we're much more low key on a lot of things, less production oriented in a lot of ways. Paul is defending in this passage his particular ministry style. So he's not just saying, oh, well, that just fits my personality. I happen to do it that way. In this particular text, he's defending his strategy, the way he does ministry, because sometimes the way he does ministry looks dumb. And it seems like he could do it more efficiently, that he could do it more effectively. He could, be, he could get more fruit for the gospel if he changed parts of the strategy. But Paul is doing it this way on purpose. So we're going to see kind of a theological defense of why Paul does ministry so awkwardly. That's what he's saying, really. That's the basics of the passage. And so uh, this is a conversation that happens, I mean, to this day. So I actually had a seminary class um, that talked about how to give good invitations You've been to church long enough to know what a good invitation is, right? I'm not talking about the one where the preacher, you keep singing the verse. There was only three verses in this song, and we've sung eight of them, you know, and, like, we keep going. Like, we're not going to end this song until somebody comes down front. And so that's, that's why people in those churches rededicate their lives so often because if nobody comes down, they'll never leave. And so I can't get resaved saved because I'm already saved, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rededicate today. Thank you for taking one for the team, Brother Susie. I mean, brother, You know, whatever. Like, it's just like, what in the world is going on? So I actually had a class that talked about this, and so you come up with different methods that make it more fruitful. Well, one thing you can do is have a, a staged invitation. And what I mean is multi-level invitation. So what you do is first... You, you just you kind of work everybody up. You've shared the gospel, hopefully, or this is pointless. And now you've come to this time where people have this opportunity to respond, but they don't really want to do it in front of everyone. That's a hard tep- step to take right at the beginning. So you get everyone that you've been there. You know what happens. You bow your head and close your eyes. And then, and then no one's looking, which is false because the preacher's looking. You know, the, half the congregation is peeking, you know, But that's the idea. Close your eyes, bow your head. And you'll get someone to just say the prayer. You'll say the prayer out loud and get them to say it in their mind to the Lord by themselves. So that was easy. And now let's add another level to that. Now, if you said that prayer, everybody keep your head bowed, your eyes closed. Just, just put a hand up. Let me, let me know that you, you made that prayer. right. And you'll get, get a few hands up. Well, now they've done a semi-public confession. So you went from totally private, no one knew, to... Just, just this little tiny step, and then after that, you you start, you get the music going again, and you you get, now if you put that hand up, what I want you to do is you have a card, and somewhere on your pew, I want you to fill out that card, um, and just put your name and number on there that you, you prayed that prayer to receive Christ today, and that you want to have a follow-up a meeting with the pastor. I'd love for you to fill that out. You get them to take this next step. Now that's like someone's going to find out that you did that. You know They're going to know, but then if you really want to rough things up a bit, then you extend that invitation longer, and then you, you give them a true step of faith now. Now If you've really done this for real, and then you can really guilt them in with the, you know, God said, Jesus said, if, if you deny me before men, you know, I will deny you before my Father. So here's your opportunity to honor this prayer that you've just made, and we're going to give you an opportunity to walk down front right now. And you see what's happened with this, right? So we've created this staged level. This is a way to get people down front. But understand that was a way to get people down front, not a way to get people saved. You see what I'm saying? So there's ministry philosophies that come from different backgrounds. And Paul's ministry philosophy and a lot of seminary um, settings would probably be condemned as a very stupid way to share the gospel. You're not going to get a lot of fruit If you do it Paul's way, of course we say that, but the Apostle Paul, you know, changed the landscape of the Middle Eastern culture during his lifetime because he had so much fruit from the gospel. So he's in a situation where the church who had been upset with him had believed some of the accusations against him. Now they've repented, but Paul's still defending himself and he's still defending some of the things they were upset about the way he did ministry because he was awkward at times Now, he's defending what's happening. Now, if you remember from last week, where we ended chapter 3, he'd set up the difference between what he calls the ministry of the Spirit versus the ministry of death. In a sense, that's a comparison between the, the new covenant and the old covenant, or at least their perception of the two covenants. One's a work-based salvation, the other is a grace-based salvation, and he's preaching a gospel that, unlike this Old Testament system of here's the rules, do the rules, you get in, where no one makes it, we're preaching a gospel that is so powerful that we see the glory of Christ unveiled through it, and it literally produces transformation in people. We just want people to see Jesus. We want to embody Jesus. We want to proclaim Jesus. We want people with unveiled face to behold the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And that will change people. And so that was where he ended chapter three. Now we're starting in chapter four. And he's going to move into, therefore, the style by which he preaches the gospel. And so let's go ahead and do that. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse one. Here we go. It says, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. And so this ministry is a reference to the new covenant and his role in it. So the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by Christ alone through his death, burial, and resurrection. He has a role in that ministry to be a proclaimer. He is preaching the gospel. So we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. Now think about that expression. What does it mean to lose heart? If you're doing something and you've lost heart, Heart. What's another way we so say? You've given up. You've despaired. You've reached the point. Of, I just don't know how I'm going to keep going with this. Why would Paul ever reach a point where he could hypothetically lose heart? So if you've remembered at all what we've talked about in Second Corinthians, Paul had been there, really specifically over the church at Corinth. He'd planted that church. He'd done work. In that church, and that church rejected him. And while that rejection was going on, he was experiencing severe persecution in Asia Minor, um, so much so that he had to leave town. He couldn't focus on ministry because of what was happening in this church. He knows that there's so many things could have gone down differently, but he was trying to be faithful to the gospel and do it the right way, do it the faithful way. And he's saying, because of his ideology, because of his theology about how this works. Even though in those seasons where ministry seemed to have no fruit, where ministry seemed to be destroying his life, nothing was going right, he still didn't lose heart. Now, there's a reason for that, and that's what we're going to see as we go forward. But, chapter, or verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Well, disgraceful, underhanded ways with regard to what? Not just general business practice. He's talking here specifically about the way he preaches the gospel, the way he does ministry, the way he even supports himself in ministry. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So he gives us basic ministry philosophy in the middle of that verse by open statement of the truth. So what's his basic ministry philosophy? I'm just gonna tell you like it is. This is the gospel. This is what's wrong with you. This is Jesus, repent and believe. This is his ministry philosophy. That's as simple as it gets. He's just preaching that gospel. He's not going to tamper with that word. And now he's calling on them. He says, I'm commending myself to your conscience, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So let's unpack conscience for a minute to make sure we understand what Paul means when he says he's commending himself to their conscience. So I grew up in a world um, where conscience was very poorly taught. In fact, I was mistaught conscience as a child, that the conscience was synonymous with Holy Spirit. And so basically you had to be a believer to have a conscience, which is opposite of what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible says everyone has a conscience. Your conscience is this built-in, God-wired piece of you that filters everything through like a moral code. This is right. This is wrong. Everyone has this conscience. Now, if you've ever done something that was against your conscience, how did that make you feel? You, You feel bad. Do people who are not Christians ever feel bad about something they did? Absolutely they do. All the time this happens. It's because they sinned against their conscience. They knew what not to do or they knew what to do. They did not do it. It wounded their conscience. They feel shame. They feel guilt. There's this inner turmoil that I knew I wasn't supposed to do that and I did it anyway. That is the built-in conscience. Paul talks a lot about this in Romans chapter 2. He's talking about how God has written a, a built-in law on everyone's heart, believer or not. This is there. And specifically the Gentiles who didn't have the word of God is who he's talking about. In that context, everyone has this built-in conscience. And so when you lie and you know you're lying, what does your conscience tell you? Like, shame on you, right? There's this, there's this condemnation. Your conscience can condemn you. So Paul would say, even before he was a believer, that he was always true to his conscience. Now, his conscience could be wrong. But it told him, "This is good. Persecuting Christians is good. And if you think persecuting Christians is good, and you're going to honor your conscience, what do you do? Well, you persecute Christians. So Paul honored his conscience. He he was very good about honoring his conscience. If we don't honor our conscience, we break our conscience. We start to sear it, and things that used to not be okay start to be okay now because we've we've broken it. We've we've carterized the edges, and it's not." living like it should anymore. So Paul here, though, is using the idea of conscience in a slightly different sense. So he's saying, I commend myself to everyone's conscience. So here's what he's really saying. Um, if you gave your opinion on someone, say there's some gossip happening in the room, and you know someone is, is saying something about this other person you know, and it's, it's not exactly true. Maybe it's a little bit true. But they're going too far. But then for the sake of, you know, you don't want to be that awkward guy who says something. You roll with it as though it is the truth. Um, If your conscience is solid and it's not been seared, how are you going to feel about that later? You're you're going to feel guilty because you know that your conscience did not permit the conversation that happened there. And you, you sinned against it. So to commend someone to your conscience is like saying... All right, guys, think back. Paul's saying, think back when I was there. You know how I acted. In good conscience, can you say I was being deceitful? And of course, Paul knows he wasn't being. He knows he was being direct, honest, genuine. He was being transparent. He didn't share the gospel for selfish reasons. He shared the gospel because it's worth being shared because he wants to share it because God has called him to share it. He is faithful to share this gospel. And he's saying, i lay this on your conscience. Because they had gone through a season where they didn't like Paul. And during that season, they would have easily said, yeah, Paul's terrible. But if they really thought about it, if they really let their conscience make that decision, they would know they were breaking their conscience to make the statement about Paul. They knew better. They'd experienced it. They'd come to the gospel. they believed in the gospel because of the ministry Paul had done. And so that's what he's saying here when he says he's placing himself on their conscience. Now here's how I want us to think about that. This is what Paul is doing. Your first blank on the outline. Paul's conscience did not permit him to share the gospel cunningly, or we could say deceptively, or even maybe pragmatically. Paul did not think that it was proper for him To alter the content in any way, even if it would help people believe more. It's kind of like saying this, you know, people would probably believe in the gospel more if we took out the part where we're evil and sinful and need God's wrath to be appeased. So if we take that part out, and then we just preach this, God loves you like you are, just enjoy him loving you, and let's make that the gospel. How much more often are people going to like that message? Like every time. What's wrong with that message? Oh man, I'm awesome. God loves me because I'm awesome. And that makes me even more awesome because He loves me. And we just have this awesome cycle going on. You know, it makes me feel good about life and good about myself. It's a self-help strategy. Right? That's wonderful. You got a lot of people believing your gospel now. But what's the key problem with this gospel? It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It doesn't count. Paul cannot make alterations. To the gospel with a clear conscience he has to keep it direct he has to keep it faithful and so let's talk about the next point then there is when the gospel is shared deceitfully the fruit cannot be trusted let me give you some examples of this so so i grew up in i would say a a genuine heartfelt evangelical church that wanted me to come to know the lord and i don't think they were being deceitful necessarily um, but I went through the, the typical pattern of children in that world, and that was I went to vacation Bible school every summer. Anybody got this experience in their background? Then you know what happens on Thursday during the week of vacation Bible school. What happens on Thursday? We get all the children saved because, you know, your VBS was not successful unless you have like an 80 90% salvation rate. Like you got to get everybody saved. And so what you do is you start with the five-year-olds or maybe the four-year-olds and you say, do you want to go to hell? No, of course they don't. Well, pray this prayer with me and you won't go to hell. So the four-year-old, five-year-old is gonna pray that prayer with you and then you say, yay, you're saved now. You can count on this forever and let's get you baptized. Except what just happened right there? (laughs) Nothing, (laughs) you know? Nothing has happened there. That's not salvation. So just a side note, if that's how you got saved, let's talk after service because you're not, okay? That happened to me. That was my exact experience growing up in church. They meant well, but to be honest, that's a very deceitful gospel presentation. It's, it's setting up something that I didn't know what was happening. Most of these kids didn't know what was happening. Now, children can, of course, come to the Lord, and um, we're going to baptize two 10-year-olds in a few weeks. Few weeks, I'm really excited about that. I believe it's absolutely genuine. So children can and do get saved during Vacation Bible School. I believe that happens, but the method matters. And so when we share it deceitfully or any sort of cunning way, um, we can't trust the fruit. Let me give you some more older examples. We we have a tendency to do this because um, we we know distinct or instinctually that the gospel's kind of hard. I mean, Paul would say to those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness. Like this does not make sense to a lot of folks. So we try to make it make sense in their worldview. So we take whatever piece of their world that's most important to them, whatever their idol is, whatever they worship, and then we take the name off of it and we, we write Jesus underneath it and we come up with a way to make that idol Jesus. So let me give you an example. Marriage how often have you heard a preacher say that if you, know, you just both follow the Lord, then your marriage will be right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be perfect. You'll, you both love Jesus. You just sprinkle some Jesus on your marriage because that's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants you to have a happy marriage. And if you just love Jesus and follow Jesus, your marriage will be happy. Have you ever known anybody who loved Jesus and their marriage still broke to pieces anyway? It happens all the all right, that's a prosperity gospel. We're sharing the gospel deceitfully. Where hey, if you just add a little Jesus to your life, it'll it'll really give you this thing you want. Of course, the easy example is the prosperity gospel: money. You just you just love Jesus, then you'll get all the money you want. All these relationships, they'll be restored. Or you know what? You love the environment. I know you worship the environment. Well, really, Jesus does too. I mean, He made it. Um, and if you just worship Jesus. Then, then, really, it's this this um, earth worship thing is really, really that's true Christianity, right? Because He made this earth, made us to keep this earth. We can take any concept that the world worships and make it sound like Christianity. And I say we. Really, this is what Satan's doing. This is what the perversions of the gospel are. Is when we we take some thing out there and we put Jesus' name on it. Isn't that exactly what Aaron? The priests did when Moses was up on the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's down with the people. They want to worship a God they can see. So what's Aaron do? He, he gets all their gold, melts it down, and this calf popped out of it. You know, he, he didn't have anything to do with that. It just walked out of the flame, apparently. And they bowed down and worshiped the God who saved them from Egypt. So they're trying, you're always trying to wed things together, and that's sharing the gospel deceitfully when people get saved in that realm we can't trust that fruit because there's no assurance that what they're believing in is the gospel what they're believing in is probably an idol that we have written the name of jesus under so we can't believe that so paul cannot in good faith share the gospel anyway other than the open statement of the truth if it's anything less than that it's anything more than that, we can't trust what happens. It has got to be the gospel. It gets worse, though. Let's read verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, now that's a reference back to chapter 3, the last paragraph, where specifically the Jews in that case, when they read Moses... When they read the Old Covenant, a veil lives over their hearts, over their spiritual eyes, and they cannot see the gospel through that particular worldview. Now Paul is taking that idea and pushing it out on the world in general. He says, so if the gospel's veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. So those who aren't saved are veiled. Therefore, those who are saved are not veiled. To be more clear, let's read verse 4. Uh, verse four. It says, in their case, that is those who are perishing, those who can't see the gospel, it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now that's such an interesting expression, the God of this world. If I just asked you a general question, who's God over the world? I mean, your default answer would probably be what? Well, if you read this verse, you know the answer is Satan, but uh, that's not how we think about Satan, is it? Who do we think of being the God of the world? We think God. The real God is the God of the world, right? How much of the universe is God got over? All of it, right? Not a trick question. He's got over everything. So we have this expression here that the God of this world, and you should note in your Bible, that's a little g, not a big g. We're not talking about Jesus. We're not talking about the Trinity. We're not talking about the Godhead. We're talking about someone else. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And I think most of you know who this is, but to be clear, we're talking about who? Talking about Satan. God is, the Bible calls Satan the God of this world. Paul uses a similar expression in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's called the prince of the power of of the air. Alright, and then just to reinforce this, when Satan tempts Jesus, do you remember one of the temptations? He says, If you bow down and worship me, that what would Satan do for Jesus? You see this world that belongs to me? I'll give you that. Which technically, and you know, we get into the hard stuff because Jesus couldn't sin, but hypothetically, if it did happen, then Satan did have the prerogative to grant that to Jesus, but then Jesus would be worshiping who? Satan. And so even though Jesus then would get the whole world, he would still be under the influence and authority, dominion of Satan. So obviously that's a dumb idea, but Satan in some sense is the God of this world. So What in the world do we mean to say that Satan is the God of this world? We've looked at many scriptures, especially when we're walking through Matthew. You remember, every time the demons were commanded to do something by Jesus, what did those demons do? They obeyed. When? Immediately. There's no sense in which the demonic world is not immediately submissive to God. Absolute submissiveness. So in what sense are we saying that Satan... Is the God of this world or the prince of the power of the air? We could really say it two different ways. One, we could say that in the curse, when we invited sin as man into the world to live under sin, um, God, in the curse, granted Satan a certain level of influence and authority over us. But there's probably a more helpful way to say it, and that it's every time you sin, you invite Satan's leadership into your life. Have you ever seen someone struggle with a drug addiction? All right, when they struggle with this drug addiction, that drug, at first, is something they want, but then it's something that they are owned by. Every time they partake, they grant a little more freedom to the idol. And it's really easy to see this in an addiction, but the harsh reality is this is all sin. works in this exact same way. Every time we sin, every time we walk a little further down the path, every time we offer something on the idol, the altar for an idol— We're going a little deeper into our submission, making God, not the real God, making Satan God over our lives. So he is the God of this world. So Paul has said here that in that case, so those who are perishing, they can't see the gospel because Satan has blinded their minds so that they cannot see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. So remember why Paul is saying this. He's connecting this to his ministry philosophy. In other words, Paul's saying, there's nothing I can say or do that's going to help them get it. I just can't do that. I can't make someone who's blind to the gospel understand the gospel and from their vantage point say, you know what, actually I guess I should believe the gospel because that makes the most sense of my worldview. So let's define what we mean by saying Satan has blinded them. So obviously we're talking spiritual here, but Satan blinds... People to the truth of the gospel. I'm going to give you three things. Um, Through worldview, worship, and wants. So let's unpack each of those. All right, worldview. Um, The other place Paul references Satan in this sort of lingo is Ephesians 2, um, 1 through 3. We see him called the prince of the power of the air. We also see three particular ways that we are living in sin, a state of sinfulness. One is we follow the course of the world. And so when I say worldview here... I'm thinking in terms of world systems. That people engage in world systems. They filter everything through that system. And when you are in that system, the Christian gospel does not make sense. It does not work. You cannot go from a secular worldview to Christianity because you work out the secular worldview and it was really Christianity all along. Because it's not. They are opposite things. And when you live in that worldview... The gospel does not make sense. In fact, a lot of deconversion stories among Christians have to do with the fact that they started embracing and walking down a path in a different worldview, and they end up in a different religion because the worldview has a lot of influence and power over how you filter everything. And so a lot of people cannot make sense of the gospel because in their worldview, it just doesn't make sense. To them, it is folly. To them, it is foolishness. To them, to go back to chapter 2, it's, they smell that aroma of Christ, and it's the smell of death, and it leads to death. And they do not want it because their worldview is broken. Furthermore, they worship Satan. Paul says everybody worships Satan if you're not worshiping God. Now, we don't do it directly. Very few people worship Satan directly. They worship some sort of idolatry that Satan has set up, and they lay out things and worship. Idols never ask for everything at the beginning. You always have to sacrifice if there's an idol. You lay something small, and then the next day they ask for something slightly larger, and you eventually lay everything on the altar, and you start worshiping this idol. And the more you worship an idol, the more you love the idol compared to its competition. And one, if you can't figure out what you worship, just figure out what you demonize. Because whatever you demonize is the opposite of the thing that you worship. And this is how that works. The more you do that, the more you worship that thing, the less Christianity makes sense to you. You are blind to it. And then furthermore, one of our biggest problems in all of Scripture really is the fact that we want to not follow God. We're not seeking. This is why the seeker-sensitive church movement didn't work. Uh, People aren't seeking that seeking their wants. I mean, you go to my farm, I can illustrate this any moment of the day. It doesn't matter what the sheep or the goats are doing. If I pull out some sweet feed, it's their personal livestock version of heroin. If I go out there with that, I don't care what they were doing, how interesting it was, they will follow me anywhere I lead now. In fact, they'll eventually they'd knock me over to get it, you know. I'm going to hold up this little bucket of sweet feed, and they want it, and they're coming for it, And that's how sin works for most of us. We are so blinded by our sin, nothing else exists. And we're just focused right there on that one thing. All right, so here's the bad, this is all bad news so far, right? Paul's saying the reason he preaches the gospel the way he does is because nobody can make sense of it anyway. They can't see it anyway. He can't talk them into it anyway doesn't matter how cunning, how deceitful he is. If he gets people converted that way, it's not even true anyway. It's useless to him to preach the gospel any other way than by the open statement of the truth. Why? Let's look at verse 5. So what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake, because, which is verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now think about what he's referencing here. What did God say in Genesis chapter 1? Let there be light. He created light from nothing. So that same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul would say his heart used to be dark. He used to be blind to the gospel. he could not see it. What changed? Jesus, God himself shone the light to Paul. Now if you think about paul 's scenario. I mean how did that happen for Paul? It was not only spiritual and symbolic, for Paul, this was quite literal. God was going to save him as a metaphor for the rest of us. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. God shone the light of the gospel directly into Paul's heart. Now, we could walk away from this, therefore, saying, well, there's really no need to bother. We're just going to have to wait on God to save people. Now, the first part of that is, is true. Every salvation, understand this, is a miracle. It, it's not natural. God has to do a work for anyone to convert, a miraculous activity has taken place. That's what cunning, deceitfulness, staged invitations, none of those things are going to save people. They can't. It's not possible. They don't have the power to save because those people are blinded to the gospel. But what has the power to save is the light of the gospel. So is there anything we can do? If we were just going to build a ministry philosophy on this. Is there a way we could open people's eyes to the gospel? That's the question at hand. So let's fill in a few more blanks on the outline. So God overcomes our sinful state, that's the darkness, through the power of the gospel, that's the light, that's what we just unpacked. So now I want to think about that last point. So what are we doing? We shine this light on people when we truthfully and faithfully share the gospel. Now that does not guarantee results, mind you. We already talked about that back in chapter 2. Our goal is not to make people repent, it's to faithfully proclaim the glory. God gets glory whether people repent or perish, he gets glory either way. Our job is to shine that light faithfully and truthfully so that people can see it. If you think about Romans, Romans talks a lot about how people get saved. It says faith comes from, do you know how the word ends? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. No one gets saved who doesn't hear the gospel. To spiritualize that, no one gets saved who doesn't see the gospel through our proclamation of the gospel. You want fruit. You want to see someone get saved. The only scenario we can produce that has any genuine hope of conversion is the open statement of the truth, the gospel itself. And when we portray the gospel, when people see the glory of God in the gospel, then there is the hope that the veil is lifted. And with unveiled face, they behold the glory of the Son of God himself and are transformed. That is why our ministry philosophy is what it is. That's why Paul's ministry philosophy was what it was for him. He just wanted to proclaim the gospel so that people could see it. And If they saw the gospel, then there was the hope that God could say, let the light shine into the darkness and the glory of the gospel would be revealed.